Hi, this is Will Page, co-presenter of the podcast Bubble Trouble with Richard Kramer, the former chief economist at Spotify and the author of Tarzan Economics. You're listening to Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etcher. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, pop stars aren't popping like they used to. Do labels have a plan? From Pitchfork, a guide to fan organizations funded by the ticketing industry. And Dustin Blocker and key takeaways from the Making Vinyl Conference. And Jay, that's not all. Let's be honest. There's so many more things we are going to (laughs) cover. There's so many things we've been covering before we even got going and started our show today. So we are glad you're here. We being Jay and myself. And with that... Without further ado, let us push the play button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, so good to see you. It has been uh, good to see you all afternoon because it seems like we've been here chatting all afternoon. We have. So many we've different been talking things. for well over an hour, but there's so many things to talk about. It's been such an amazing week. You and I have some really exciting things to share with our audience in the coming week. We have a special episode. Um, we're not going to you know, spoil it yet, but we have some incredible uh, guests for our three-year anniversary show, mm-hmm. which is coming up. And uh, we'll be uh, filling you in on those secrets uh, soon. But we are so excited that we got the level of talent. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we're that $50 saddle on a $10 horse. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool. And, and that was a, such a cool intro from our, our friend, Will Page. And it, for those of you who have been paying attention, we dropped a special episode of the Your Morning Coffee podcast, an interview with Will Page. And it's live now, and I highly encourage you to check it out because, uh, you know, we're, we're big Will Page fans. We are, and we had such a wonderful conversation with him. And as we always do, uh, we do talk with him periodically. And but you, you and I both had the same experience. We had done that. I can't remember when we did it. It wasn't. June. It wasn't. It was back in June. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and then you know you go back and you listen to that, and you're like, because because I I kind of put it together, and I'm like, wow, 
that was a great line that Will just said. Gosh, that was a great line that Will, what a great point Will just made. You know, I'm listening to it again with fresh ears and yeah. it was really fantastic to, to chat with him and his insights and the level with which he pays attention to stuff that is just you know, and I, we've talked, you know, I, I jokingly admit that I have a degree in economics, but I, you know, it's been 30 years since I've had a class in economics. And, you know, he is an economist and he is the real deal. And we, <laughs> you and I both talked about how much we love the book Freakonomics. And it, it's this book that came out a number of years ago. If you haven't read it, it's 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 a hoot. It's a great book. Um, but but Will puts the fun in economics and, yeah. you know, and economics as, as uh, you know, used to be, it's referred to as the dismal science, but yeah. not with Will Page in the room. It's no, fascinating. not at all. And you, you mentioned, you know, Freakonomics, which is not Will Page, but his book, Tarzan Economics is amazing. It's one of the, the books that we've actually read. It's if you get kind of the re, uh, what do you call it? The second edition or whatever of the book, the paperback. It's the paperback you know, edition, yeah. At the airport, it's called Pivot, and he jokingly says that a, a you know a book on economics doesn't sell in the airport, but uh, <laughs> w- we highly recommend it. But you just mentioned something that reminded me of uh, I think it was a guitar player for um, Def Leppard or some band. You know, went to see. Um, gosh, I can't remember somebody really good like Jimmy Page. And he said, I went to the show as a guitarist. I left as a guitar owner. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how we feel sometimes with Will Page. You know, it's like we get to sit at the uh, big kids table and, and there's always something we can learn. You know, he gave us a really clear picture of the value of the entire music ecosystem. He talked about his herbivores and carnivores Um, You asked him some really interesting questions about vinyl and pricing. Man, it was just such a great conversation. It really was. Globalization. Of course, we talked user-centric versus pro rata. And uh, yeah, it was just a great, great conversation. Hopefully everyone enjoys it as well. And what I meant to say with the the whole thing about uh, Freakonomics is that if you've read Freakonomics, uh, it's kind of the application of economics to... uh, to, to things that you wouldn't associate thinking economics can be can be used to to tease out information and yeah. data and things like that. And it, it's a it's a really entertaining book. And they have a great podcast too. That Freakonomics yes, podcast yes. is still one of my favorites. And what it taught me and something that Will has reinforced with us and you understanding economics much more than I do is that economics sounds like it's about math or about money. And what you guys have taught me is it's really more about human behavior and incentives and why we do the things we do. And I, I can't recommend his book more. It is just such a great read. And Will jokes around that, uh, and it's probably a fact that, you know, 80% of books that are purchased aren't necessarily read. (laughs) And, you know, we talk about that on the vinyl side that half the vinyl isn't cracked open or they don't own a turntable. And this is one of those books that I I told Will, I said, yeah, I actually read your book and I really enjoyed it. Well, and uh, as he said in the the interview, uh, you know, we're talking about the pricing of vinyl and he said he thinks there's room further to go, higher prices for vinyl. And uh, he explains why. So hopefully everyone gets a chance to check it out and enjoy it as as much as we enjoyed chatting with Will. And and Will's got a great sense of humor and uh, he swears (laughs) a little bit and... (laughs) 
He's just got a great perspective. Yeah, so yeah. we had a fabulous time. Speaking of podcasts, Jay, you've got another couple new behind the set list podcasts coming out. Oh yeah. Thanks. We do have uh, a couple of really good ones. Um, two people that I just absolutely love. And I was so thrilled to be able to sit down and have conversations separately with each, uh, Glenn Peoples and I, um, the first one was Grace Potter and her new album is so good. You know, it's, uh, she was told early on in her career not to record road songs that people don't want to hear them, but uh, she's found that uh, not to be the case. And the new album is is absolutely amazing. And then we also have an episode with Peter Case, who you mm-hmm. and I remember from The Nerves and Plimsolls. And um, it is there's a documentary out, if you haven't heard us raving about it, called A Million Miles Away. Um, but we had a chance to talk to him about his his set list about what he plays and why he plays it. And uh, I'm just such a huge fan of his career and his music. So um, those two are coming soon for, um, for behind the set list. But uh, yeah, thanks for, uh, for mentioning that a couple of highlights this week. There were a couple of stories that we're not going to dig too deep into, but we wanted to, you know, tell our audience about the first one that I thought was really good that it was from um, music business worldwide. And the um, headline was SoundCloud is here to change the world. And it was a really cool interview with someone who I recently met at the music uh, business association conference. Um, I did a little event there with Tracy Chan and the, and the great team from SoundCloud I got to sort of moderate MC an event uh, with them. And I met Emmy Lovell. And this piece is really a kind of a, a great interview with Emmy and talks about her background. But I just pulled out a quote because I thought this was so spot on. Emmy says that it's never been easier to make music, but it's never been more difficult to be a successful musician than in 2023. But you can still break an artist on SoundCloud, and I'm really hopeful that we can help facilitate that. So um, check that uh, interview out. She's got a a wealth of experience uh, to draw from, and they're really making some really innovative uh, changes over at SoundCloud. Yeah, really good stuff. Um, and then we also met, we also saw another Music Business Worldwide article on Amazon Music partnering with bands in town for new merch integration. That's pretty exciting as well. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that's a pretty big deal because they're you know with this integration starting you know that was August third, so a few days ago, fans globally can shop merch items from artists while browsing artist profiles on the Bands in Town website and app. So, you know, that's, you know, almost 600,000 registered uh, artists with uh, bands in town uh, for artists. So that was a pretty cool integration, Amazon and bands in town. Yeah, absolutely. So very exciting stuff. And then another great article. This is from The Motley Fool. And if you're not familiar with The Motley Fool, it's it's a it's an investment. It started on AOL, I think, back in the day. Oh, wow. Recall. It's been around a and, while. Uh, Oh, it's been around a while. Yeah. And, and they, they bring humor and, and uh, just fun in, when it terms to, in terms of investing. Uh, but there was an article they, they had posted called, uh, that said, Will Spotify ever turn a profit? And yeah, that boy, caught my eye. 
Yes, it certainly did. And they had a, a few key points, they, they, one of which was Spotify added a record number of users in the second quarter. Okay, we know mm-hmm. about that. The company's operating margin is at its worst level in years, is another point they brought up. And then also management needs more cost discipline if it wants to reach its long-term profitability goals. Yeah, and I think and you hit well, it on the head when you're talking about, you know, we've been talking a lot about these earnings calls and, you know, what they mean for the you know, DSPs and for the music industry in general, but this is more um, a financial uh, planners sort of look at it. And there were a couple of really interesting points, but the one that really jumped out at me was they said that profitability problem has an easy fix, but will management act? Some of Spotify's Q2 expenses were one-time blips and they should be fixed in future quarters. There were around $150 million worth of expenses in the quarter basically related to layoffs and its real estate optimization plan. However, even if you add these back in, Spotify would have still lost $123 million in the quarter. Here's the part that jumped out at me. So why can't a company with over 500 million users generate a profit? It's simple. There are too many employees for its gross profitability. Even after laying off a total of 800 employees this spring, Spotify still had around 9,500 full-time employees and generated 3.2 billion in gross profit over the last 12 months. In contrast, Netflix had 12,800 full-time employees and at the end of 2022 generated 12.5 billion in gross profit over the last 12 months. That is four times the amount of gross profit, but only 1.3 times the number of employees. Right. And it ends with saying executives at the company claim that profitability is just over the horizon as the business works through major investments in podcasting, advertising, and other projects. However, it looks like most investors are losing their patience with shares of Spotify, falling over 10% on the day of the earnings announcement. So, Yeah, uh, interesting uh, headline, yeah. interesting uh, take. <clears throat> and then if you really want to dig into what's going on with uh, you know, these earnings calls and you know, what's going on with the DSPs, and, and not just the DSPs, but a lot of you know, tech and music companies, check out Glenn Peoples, The Ledger. Um, It's a weekly newsletter and it's something we read every week and it really gives you a clear picture. He's even got his own index in there. So you can, at a glance, you can kind of see how things are going. Um, And a couple of other things before we jump into this week's stories. Uh, A a headline that I saw a lot was that Taylor Swift um, was giving her tour bus drivers like $100,000 each um, recently in a, at a concert uh, in Santa Clara. But that was only a, a small part of the story, right? You remember yes. that? Yes, I do. And she actually ended up giving bonuses totaling over $55 million to every person working on her massive Eras tour. And boy, that is just... You know what? I mean, if that doesn't put a smile on your face, yeah. I don't know what does. You know, I've those never heard of that, anybody doing I've that. Never heard have of you? Those. I have not. I mean, and I've certainly... heard of bonuses before, but to take now, you know, this is going to end up being the biggest tour ever. One point something mm-hmm. billion dollars there projecting, you know, when all is said and done, um, it's going to set records and it's it's made a lot of money. But for her to basically take care of her own like that $55 million that she was under no obligation to pay out. And some of these people now can afford a home who couldn't before. 
And I just, I think that is such a beautiful thing. And do you think she's ever going to have trouble getting a crew ever? <laughs> I don't think so. But this also sets up, you know, an expectation. Uh, so, yeah. but it's, oh, it's wonderful. But and it's like bonuses wonderful. at work. You and I used to work yes. for major labels and things. And when you had a great year, sometimes you would get a really nice bonus. Mm-hmm. And when you had a not so great year, you wouldn't. So this is an anomaly. You know, this is like the movie Avatar that comes out of nowhere and just does tons of revenue. And, you know, you can bet that there's some bonuses associated with that. So major kudos, tip to the hat to Taylor Swift giving her whole crew uh, over $55 million and taking care of them. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk about this week was the Vinyl Records Manufacturing Association Um, they had this making vinyl conference, Mm -hmm. um, and we had a chance to speak with Dustin Blocker, uh, who is the chief creative officer at hand-drawn, uh, pressing, which I've used to create vinyl in the past. They're awesome. And, And if you don't know who Dustin Blocker is, you know, he's a former musician and a singer for 15 years. Um, he founded North Texas based artist centric record label, hand drawn records in 2011. Then in like 2014, he started hand drawn pressing. That's that vinyl record manufacturing arm that I was telling you about. And he's the chief creative officer there. Yes, indeed. He, uh, and then of course, if you want to talk about the VRMA, that's, that is the professional trade association of independent businesses committed to the craft of vinyl record manufacturing through collaboration, advocacy, standardization, and education. The association serves to promote, to advocate and promote the vinyl record manufacturing industry while providing the latest and most accurate information to the industry at large. The association offers a forum for member companies to engage in ongoing discussions and provide external communication concerning various issues and opportunities related to other new technologies that may that may emerge in the future and yeah. uh, and that uh, that particular event moves around i think it was just in minneapolis but i saw it in los angeles actually pre covid i went to that event and it's really fun and it's yeah. fascinating i'd like fascinating. to go especially now so you know without further ado I, you know i had a chance to actually uh, talk with dustin this last week and kind of ask him about that making vinyl conference. Like, tell me about it. What did you learn? Here's what he said. Dustin, thanks for joining us. Um, you just wrapped up the making vinyl conference. What were some of the key takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it's great to see the market continue to grow. Uh, it's, you know, it's going to grow another, it looks like almost 20% again this year, which is absolutely wow. crazy. It's about 12 years of growth. Um, so, and there's about 175 plants, uh, on the planet now. So a lot of options for customers, which is great. Um, and then the big one is really post COVID, uh, timelines have finally gotten back to normal and stable. So, I mean, uh, so I, I run a plant of course in Texas as well. And, um, this time last year we were booked for nine months out, just turning away orders. And, um, now we're down to about eight to 12 weeks wow. turnaround time. So. Yeah, it's been that's that's been the biggest one. Yeah, nice to hear from Dustin and uh I, you know, again, I still I still pinch myself because <laughs> you and I were there when vinyl was being shoved out the door with just no fanfare, with no sentimentality at all. We have moved on, no more vinyl, no more cassettes. It's all about compact discs. And yet, if you would have told us then, 
that in 20 odd years, we'd be still talking about more than 30 odd years. We'd be talking about the resurgence of vinyl. We would have laughed you out of the room. Yeah. And yet here it is. Yet here it is. And it's not going away anytime soon. And it's growing. And because of the fact that there are some really creative people in there like Dustin. So thank you, Dustin, for... Uh, telling us about that uh, conference. That was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's jump into some of the stories, Jay. The first one is from Billboard. Pop stars aren't popping like they used to. Do labels have a plan? And this is from our good friend Elias Light, actually. Yeah. And it kind of starts by saying, at a time when executives agree it's harder to create superstars, the music industry may need to change how it views a win. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And of course, it starts by saying, you know, what does it mean to break an artist? And as I started reading that, you know, I still I still associate breaking artists with radio, really breaking them at radio. But as we, you and I have talked about a lot, sometimes that's the last place you want to start because that, you know, that people fall in love with a song, not with an artist sometimes. And, you know, depending on the artist, that could not be necessarily what you want to happen. But, you know, it's in this day and age, and I see this because I do a lot of work with the book industry as well. I see kind of a similar thing where they're, they're not really developing. And when we say breaking, I'll, I'll move and switch the word to developing. They're not developing artists like they used to and like we used to. And that is a real problem for the business as a whole, isn't it? It is. And we talked to Will Page about this in that episode, and he challenged us to come up with, I believe it was uh, UK artists that had broken since 2017, and we couldn't think of any. That's I texted right. him earlier today a, a couple, and he you know, reminded me that they were actually American artists that I sent him. But uh, <laughs> it's a challenge because we, we're just not breaking... Uh, the artists that we used to, you know, the consensus among label executives is that the last pop artist to break big was Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, she had mm -hmm. four top 10 Billboard Hot 100 hits during 2021 and debuted at number one on the chart with Vampire back in uh, July of 2023. Its track record, they say, that today makes her seem like a unicorn. Nobody knows how to break music right now, one senior executive said. I think they're all lost. Exactly. There is a need and a desire for new artists that have real substance. Artists that are more than just a song that we can really lean into. Buy concert tickets, buy merchandise, says Jay Irving, who's the manager and founder of the artist services and distribution company Human Resources, uh, which is true. You know, and each and then another person said each person I talk to in the industry is more depressed about this than the person I talked to before them. Yeah, I'm hearing manager. it a lot, too. Um from mostly artist management right now about how challenging it is to rise above the clutter with all of the music that's released um, on average daily that we talk about. And not only that, but the fact that the shelf life is so much shorter that even when you can break through, whether it's a viral moment, whether it's a radio moment, whether whatever it is, that the time you have to take advantage of that because it's fleeting. It doesn't last as long as it used to. If you, you know, uh, if you're on the voice or America's got talent, you better capture that audience and that crowd because pretty soon it's going to be gone. Yeah. Well, and I think for, for me anyway, I, I think so much of this is patience and it's just something we don't see anymore. You know, it's, it's so rare that an artist gets a second chance, another, a second album, let's say, uh, if the first album wasn't a 
drop dead success. And, right. you know, when you look at the, the biggest selling artists of all time, the, the one I'd still like to use is Pink Floyd. You know, you, we, we can all name Dark Side of the Moon, but that was either the sixth or the seventh album that they did. You know, EMI and then here in the state's capital stuck with those guys through the loss of, a, of their lead singer after the first album, Sid Barrett, and through other... The albums were showing, you know, incremental improvement, but they were certainly not smashes, but right. they stuck with those guys. That's and then artist when, development, right? That is artist development. And it is so rare that any artist gets a, gets a second album. Can you that imagine that happening today? Sticking with an today. artist? That The only way it would happen is if it was an indie label yes. uh, indie yes. labels tend to stick with artists that aren't filling up arenas and having platinum success because of the art and i see that time and time again now does that happen at the major level yeah it sure does but not as often as you might like no and as i mentioned earlier you know i see this in the book business as well as the music business and, and what i kind of see is you see kind of you know lots of releases with a minimal marketing budget and they you know they'll wait to see to for for, for something to kind of take hold and then they'll devote a lot more you know then they kind of shift focus to that one book or one album um and yeah. then to the and then the other ones just kind of fall by the wayside, and you know that really wasn't the way it was when it, when we started in the business. You know, you would see, especially you know, I was at the Warner Music Group at the very beginning of my career, and and that really that they built their 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 deserved reputation on artist development and sticking with artists and giving artists a lot of free reign. Um, and some yeah. time to develop. And it's just so rare now. It really yeah. is rare. Yeah. And today it's so much about the track and not the album. You know, it's a track based economy. So uh, the conversations you have are totally different, but here's the problem. It's not linear and it's expected to be. And what I mean by that is you may have an artist that has a decent debut um, and then the next track they put out, they're expecting it to do more. And then the third track, it's supposed to do more, but it yeah. rarely works like that. You know, it's, it's more undulating, right? It, it, it varies so much. And there's also things like they talk about the decline of mass media, like radio and the unpredictability of TikTok. And Elias points that out in this, in this piece. And some people attribute the, the feeling of industry inertia to the exhausting intensity of competing for attention in a world where gamers and influencers, they wield as much clout as music artists, if not more. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Well, and then interestingly enough, you know, you're seeing kind of conversations about lessening the dependency on super, on superstars because we're not developing superstars. There was a, a, a part of this that Steve Cooper, former CEO of uh, Warner Music Group, said last year um, that they've reduced their dependency on superstars, uh, that the company had taken steps to lessen, to lessen their dependency on superstars. One way the major label have done this is to step up signings with the goal of spreading growth across a larger number of artists rather than relying on a few tentpole acts. And that's interesting because that's historically, in our era, um, really what kind of kept the doors open, right? You know, you need to have those superstar acts that help fund and uh, and provide a, 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 a environment where you, can where you can invest in some of these newer developing artists. Right, so, and that's the thing in the music industry that 
drives people outside of the music industry crazy because we create a product and then go try to create a demand. And that's the opposite of what most businesses do. And Mm -hmm. to your point, they may sign a dozen artists before they have one that has positive ROI that pays for the marketing and promotion of those other uh, records. And it's, it's a tough business to be in. It's got like a 93% failure rate if you're just talking about ROI. So, and, and plus when you don't have the revenue that you bring in from, let's say back in the day, it was cassettes and vinyl and, you know, later it was CDs and and then downloads in, in streaming. There's, there's less revenue, um, for most developing and middle-class artists. So you have to kind of take a look at like, well, what, what is success, you know, today, what is breaking, uh, an artist? And they talk about Taylor Elitzer, uh, co-founder of label and management company, God Mode. And she works with a rapper named JPEG Mafia. And she says that this rapper hasn't had a traditional hit in a commercial sense, but even so, his business is enormous. We sold 15,000 vinyl records from his web store in 24 hours. He sells seven figures in merch. Now, in my mind, that artist is broken. You know, they, yes. they've broken through. They're, they're successful. But it's different because now we have all these little sort of niches and you have to celebrate those little victories. What is it for you? Mm -hmm. Is it financial? Is it playing larger cap rooms? What is your definition of success? Right. And for me, as, as a fan of music, it's not a radio hit out of the box, certainly. You know, in fact, some, like, like I keep saying, sometimes that's the worst thing. You know, you, you don't want somebody to fall in love with a song of yours. You want somebody to fall in love with you as an act uh, or you as an artist. And, you know, because if you fall in love with a song and you don't have that song the next time, you've lost all that momentum. So right. how do you, how do you, you know, get people to fall in love with you? And again, a lot of this stuff, even though there's so much going on that's different now than when we started, it's still a lot of it is just getting out in front of people and playing and right. getting people to watch you and see you and like you. And that's, you know, and, and you know, we're not developing these stadium acts. Like, you know, that's the real thing that I think is just surprising is, is, you know, we're, who's, who's a big act that's really doing big stadium business that's been developed in the last three, four five, six, seven, eight years. Yeah. Not many, not you know, many. Uh, you know, my business partner, Jeff Mosco and I were talking about that this morning. He was talking about Doja Cat and Kid Leroy mm-hmm. and a few of those. And, and it's not like it's completely a, a dry desert, but you're right. It's few and far between. And this business life blood is on new developing artists, but the revenue is really coming from what they call catalog, which is 18 Mm -hmm. months or older. But as we've pointed out many times, that doesn't mean Chuck Berry, you know, (laughs) or, you know, or little Richard, what, what catalog really means is something that's released. Most of those sales are coming from the last three years. And so there's a lot of that going on. So, um, an amazing piece by, uh, Elias light. And it's something we talk about with will page too. We need to do a better job of developing artists, but before we jump into our next story, we should probably think our, or thank our sponsors. Oh, for crying out loud. You are right. Jay. 
<laughs> and we kind of seem to, to go between one of us will forget <laughs> and then the other will remind the other. And as I always say, we are so lucky to have the sponsors we have, including yeah. HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot, and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by Live Music Discovery and Marketing Platform, Bands in Town. That's right. In the news, Bands in Town. Over 80 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. I do. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 580,000 artists with their super fans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. And as we mentioned earlier, Amazon has just partnered with uh, Bands in Town with this new merch integration. Uh, You got to check it out. Yes, and we are also sponsored by the Music Business Association. The Music Business Association creates the rooms in which the important conversations that shape our industry's future take place. When we work together, our industry, your business, and your people will be stronger. Our membership represents every major segment of the global music business, including labels and distributors, music streaming, retail and wholesale, publishers and PROs, rights management and metadata, artist managers, tech and startups. Uh, For more information, go uh, over to music Musicbiz.org for more information. So big thanks to the Music Business Association. Hype <sighs> bands in town. We certainly <laughs> appreciate it. And uh, you know, we get rolling, Jay. We just you know kind of lose our minds. And of course, I get to hang out with my good buddy Jay Gilbert what? every weekend. Yes, no every weekend, if not, but also during the week. And uh, he's a music industry <laughs> consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups. And also the curator of his own Jay Gilbert archives. Jay has been shooting concert. Uh, images since what was the was your first show? Seventy-seven, yeah, yeah. Cheap He's trick opening for Kiss, yeah. And he his his uh, his archives of photography that he has done over the years is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, thank you, and, brother. Uh, yeah, so uh, we'll probably be hearing more about that in the future. And this uh, this guy over here, one of my best friends, is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. And he's a real man. He does real work. Today he was out <laughs> in the fields getting his hands dirty, digging in the dirt, doing pipes and crops and whatever the hell you do. And uh, my, my hat's off. You're like the Marlboro man. Without the without the actual Marlboro cigarettes, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, without that. <laughs> oh, indeed, indeed, indeed. All right, Jay, let's jump over to our second story. It's from Pitchfork. Uh, a guide to fan organizations funded by the ticketing industry. Yes. What? Now, uh, we have to give a special shout out to Chris Castle. Um, we are big, <laughs> big Chris Castle fans here. We read music technology policy um, and every once in a while, we actually get to have a cup of coffee with him. By the way, I think he's going to be here in October. And uh, oh. I, t- I told him that you and I will buy him lunch. Um, so hopefully we can make that happen. But anyway, the, uh, Chris, um, we send each other smart-ass texts from time to time. <laughs> um, and he sent me this piece. And it came out after your morning coffee was already sent out because I send it out really early in the morning on Fridays. So people on the East coast can get it at a early hour. And so this hadn't, I missed it anyway. It's by Mark Hogan over at pitchfork. 
And as you said, the headline is a guide to quote unquote fan organizations funded by the ticketing uh, industry. And uh, it says the Ticket Buyer Bill of Rights Coalition is influencing policies surrounding concert tickets, but its member organizations are funded by the likes of StubHub. I was, I mean, I was stunned when I was reading the headlines and then sort of digging in and texting with Chris like, is this, is this for real? Yeah, it says before bots and StubHub, before many states softened scalping laws and the internet turned ticket buying into a strategy game, nabbing a seat for your favorite artist's upcoming tour was easier, at least a lot more straightforward. There are now a thousand small decisions that get made around how ticketing works for everyday fans, but very few of them are in the hands of consumers. To make matters worse, the biggest players in the game, Ticketmaster and parent company Live Nation, along with top ticket reseller StubHub, have for years now used the front of nonprofit groups professing to represent fans. Even these groups' names are laughable. The Fans First Coalition and the Fan Freedom Project, respectively. Ooh, yeah, oh and goodness, we'll, we'll so dig sad. into some of them that they identify here. Um, but, uh, Mark goes on to say that these days live nation backs an initiative called fans and artists insisting on reforms fair, uh, get it as part of a coalition that includes universal music group and major talent agencies. Their top priority is giving quote artists, the right to decide how their tickets can be sold, transferred and resold end quote. Perhaps unsurprisingly, despite Ticketmaster's own resale program, that goal runs counter to the interests of professional scalpers. Mm-hmm. There are also a number of other organizations claiming to prioritize the interests of ordinary fans while drawing money from ticket resellers. As legislation moves forward to avoid a repeat of Taylor Swift's era's tour headaches, the Ticket Buyer Bill of Rights Coalition which is an umbrella group of, in quotation marks, consumer advocacy groups, according to concert trade publication Polestar, has been active in shaping the debate in Congress. And yet Pitchfork can report that the coalition's five members, the Consumer Federation of America, Fan Freedom, National Consumers League, Protect Ticket Rights, and Sports Fans Coalition, have all received some degree of financial support from the scalping business. Oh, boy. It may or may not be a coincidence that this Bill of Rights prioritizes the guaranteed ability to resell tickets at any price. And then they say in parentheses, it says, other potential fixes, such as a ban on the sale of speculative tickets where scalpers list tickets they don't already own, are conveniently absent from the discussion. Oh, the plot thickens. So yes. while Protect Ticket Rights posts clearly on its website that it's backed by the National Association of Ticket Brokers, other groups in the coalition aren't so obviously linked to the multi-billion dollar ticket resale industry. This matters because all of the era's tour political hoopla, the nitty gritty of lawmaking is complicated. It would be all too easy for Congress to declare victory and pass a bill that fails to address the issues of either skyrocketing ticket prices or infuriating ticket buying experiences. Right. They go on to say, instead, we need a fix that balances the needs of artists and actual fans, not Ticketmaster 
or ticket brokers. But in the meantime, it's good to know who's funding the groups that are advocating for consumers, in quotation marks, in the ticket debate. Here's a quick breakdown of which consumer advocacy groups back the Ticket Buyer Bill of Rights and which resellers fund them. Okay, I'll take the first one. Sure. National Consumers League. Uh, the funders of National Consumers League include StubHub and Vivid Seats. Founded in 1899, this nonprofit advocacy group is the nation's oldest consumer organization. I didn't know that. It takes a stand on issues from child labor and privacy to food safety and medication reform. Interesting. Then there's the Fan Freedom Project, which funders include StubHub, launched in 2011 by StubHub's then-owner eBay. This nonprofit advocacy group has long argued against restrictions on ticket resale, maintaining that it is supporting basic consumer protections. No one should be able to tell you what you can do with your ticket after you buy it, the Fan Freedom Project <laughs> website reads. That's up to you, the fan. Yeah, the next one is Protect Ticket Rights protect ticket rights. The funders of that group include National Association of Ticket Brokers. Launched in 2016 by the National Association of Ticket Brokers, this initiative has always called for a, quote, open, transparent, and competitive market, end quote, where ticket holders have the right to purchase, sell, give away, or otherwise transfer their tickets. It website, its website continues, our work is possible thanks to the professional ticket selling companies of NATB, which support market reform that improves the fan ticket buying experience. Mm. Oh, God, this just is so depressing. <laughs> then there's the Sports Fans Coalition. The funders include StubHub. Build as a grassroots sports fans advocacy organization. This nonprofit group was founded by former Clinton and Bush administration staffers in 2009. Uh, in quotation marks, they say ticket transferability is one of the most important consumer protections mm -hmm. for fans of live events, the Sports Fans Coalition website says. Ticket transferability refers to the ability to resell tickets, as you may know, which of course is also pretty important for professional resellers. Of yeah, tickets. you sensing a theme here? Uh, and then the, I think this is the last one. Yeah. The last one. And, and certainly there is a theme here is the consumer federation of America. And the funders of that include protect ticket rights, fan freedom established in 1968. This nonprofit advocacy group speaks out on issues across the U S economy from banking, credit to product safety. CFA's director of consumer protection, Aaron White, recently championed ticket transferability. There it is again in a social media post saying, quote, consumers should be able to do what they want with the tickets when they buy them. End quote. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks to Chris Castle for passing this along. I think I'm so depressed after I read it. It's like, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's nice to just have some clarity and some honesty and, you know, about who's really behind these groups. And before we say goodbye today, um, we always rave about Glenn people's weekly, uh, newsletter, um, we the ledger. And uh, if you um, subscribe to Billboard Pro, you can kind of click uh, on that newsletter, which is free, by the way. You can click on that and get kind of the full story. Uh, mm -hmm. goes a little bit deeper. And this week, I wanted to pull it out. And you and I were talking about this earlier. So I wanted to just kind of shine a light on this. 
Um, the headline was three takeaways about music streaming from recent earnings reports. And uh, it says subscriptions remain strong and music is highly undervalued, according to Deezer CEO, Hieronimo Fulgera. So uh, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to go through those three uh, takeaways that uh, Glenn yes. points out. Yeah. So the first one is the subscription market is holding up well. Spotify beat expectations for both monthly active users, that's MAUs, and subscribers aided by improved retention. Sorry, I have to turn the page. Uh, of, and marketing efficiencies, the company explained in its <laughs> July 25th shareholder presentation. Spotify's premium subscribers grew 17% year over year to $220 million, beating its guidance of $217 million. Spotify's MAUs increased 27% year over year to $551 million compared to guidance of $530 million. Yeah. Universal Music Group attributed subscriber growth in its recorded music segment uh, uh, 13% in the second quarter and 116 in the first half of the year to broad-based growth in subscribers across all major global platform partners. Yeah. Res Reservoir Media CEO, uh, gosh, Jay. Good luck with, with that one. Guy. Yeah. Uh, it's Gallner. Carl Sahi. Yes, there of course. Okay. Cited Spotify's higher than expected subscriber numbers in the company's August 2nd earnings call and said its strong quarter quarterly results reflect increasing demand trends trends for streaming music globally. Yeah. Not all subscription services made gains, though Deezer lost 100,000 subscribers from June 30th, 2022 to June 30th of this year. And Pandora ended the quarter with 6.2 million subscribers, down 100,000 from 6.3 million, uh, million a year earlier. Yeah. So that was the first takeaway. The second takeaway is services have pricing power. Um, and that was interesting. You know, Spotify raised its individual subscription plan in the U.S. We talked about that, you know, in, in end of July. And that was, there was a lot of great fanfare around that. You know, after all, the price had been unchanged since the service launched in the U.S. in 2011. And uh, although the family plan price increased by $2 in, uh, you know, per month in 2021, Spotify is relatively late to the game, though. Deezer raised its price from 9.99 euros to 10.99 euros. Uh, back in January of 2022, a major factor in the company's direct subscriber average revenue per user climbing 4.9% year over year. Apple Music, Amazon Music, they both raised their prices last year as well. And according to Deezer CEO, Hieronimo Figuera, the increase had, quote, pretty much no impact on churn, end quote. And we thought that was really interesting. And it's something that we talked to Will Page about too, right? The yes, number of subscribers did. who leave a service over that period and clearly demonstrated that music is highly undervalued and that platforms like us have more pricing power than initially anticipated. That said, Felgera stated that Deezer's guidance for full year revenue growth does not include another price increase later in the year. Right. And the last point uh, made in this piece was the advertising market continues to have challenges. At Spotify, music advertising revenue grew in the mid-single digits year over year, lower than the 12% 
or 15% at constant currency growth in total ad-supported revenue. That implies advertising revenue from podcasts, which was up 30% year-over-year, contributed to most of the growth. Spotify also noted softer pricing due to macroeconomic environment that offset double-digit gains in impressions. Uh, UMG's ad-supported streaming revenues were up 5% in the second quarter, 2% in the second uh, in the first half of the year. Uh, UMG's CFO Boyd Muir said it's too early to call a positive turnaround on the market. Uh, Believe is still impacted by the weak ad-supported monetization, said CFO Chief Strategist Officer uh, Javier Dumont. The advertising malaise extends to broadcast radio, too. Weak national advertising remain the main factor driving a decline in total revenue. Uh, so a lot of things going on in this space. And, you know, and again, what, what when we read these things about Spotify, it, it's I, I now flip back to this, like we were talking about earlier today, just the reality that Spotify is still so top heavy. And in terms of their stock prices and being profitable, boy, they've got a long way to go. And it's yeah. going to be really interesting to see if they make some of those really hard decisions, which yeah. are... You know, and you and others have mentioned, you know, going into Spotify's office and just how opulent they are and, you know, all of the real estate they, they hold. And boy, that's that's big ticket price, big ticket prices and big expenses that go against the bottom line. And I wonder if they're going to start trimming the fat. Yeah, and it seems like they have. They've started. And yeah, a special started. special shout out to our friend Glenn Peoples. There's nobody better in the business at you know, being on those earning calls and then making sense of, of what's being said. Um, before we say goodbye, um, I did want to mention, you know, when we were talking about the behind the set list um, with Grace Potter, I, I failed to mention that her, her new album that comes out um, on August 18th is called Mother Road. And uh, you'll know that reference if uh, you've seen Grapes of Wrath. Um, but the video for the song Mother Road is out and uh, during the intro she men- she mentioned spaghettification and if you fall follow Neil deGrasse Tyson you know what spaghettification is and if not uh, Google that but it's absolutely hilarious the video is amazing the album is fantastic I got a sneak peek of it again uh, Grace Potter uh, Mother Road comes out August eighteenth. Awesome. And on that note, we're going to wrap it up. So we want to thank everyone for listening in today. We also want to thank our sponsors, the Music Business Association, Hypebot and Bands in Town. We are forever grateful uh, to you, to them and to you, the listeners. So big thanks. We will come back again next week. Yes, we will, because we are headed for our three year anniversary. Hard to believe. Uh, We are very excited to do our. Well, I can't tell you what we're going to do, but you'll find out. So on that note, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.